Welcome to the Bodies by Brent podcast. I am your host, Brent Ruska, and on this episode, we have one of the leading experts on trauma, Will Reason. Will has learned under the Shipibo people of the Amazon is on the front lines in our species battle against trauma. Psychedelics were Will's foray into feeling all the things that were happening inside him. Little by little, he followed his curiosity about esoteric, mystic traditions, religion, culture, psychology, and physiology. This led him to practice meditation, movement, introspective awareness, and hiring mentors to help him discover more and more about himself. While turning to feeling good is natural, it's a trap. Life is painful sometimes. Our resistance to the pain is what creates our suffering. We'll share some information, practices, and techniques to overcome and combat our trauma. This episode is special because I have never had a conversation with someone who's articulated what trauma is and how it works on us and in our lives better than Will. Guys, I'm excited for you to dive into this episode. And if you want to subscribe to get more podcasts, simply text 512-488-4223. Again, that's 512-488-4223. And you'll get podcasts sent directly to you. Thank you for listening. Leave a five-star review, and let's just jump into this week's episode. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brent. Yeah. Thank you for being here. So I invited you because I really want to dive into the world of trauma and the work you do, because I really want people to understand and walk away with what is trauma, the importance of healing trauma, how it can show up, and how to begin to maybe move through that and transition it mm -hmm. out of themselves to create a better life. From your perspective, what is trauma? How can you experience trauma? And how does it you know, manifest or be stored in the body? Mm. Let's start with what trauma is. Mm. So for, for a long time, trauma was understood as something happens, something bad that happened to us, for instance, like abuse, war, you know, something like that, car accident. But as we understand the human body better as we understand the nervous system better what we're understanding is trauma is not actually the thing it's how our system responds or reacts to an experience that's overwhelming hmm. so we'll say we might say anything that was too much or happened too fast for our body to process to process the experience or too little for too long like in cases of neglect i didn't get my needs met for too many too many times in a row so too little nourishment for too long so it's the living memory of something which you could think of like a reflex but it's not necessarily a reflex the way that i have a, a reflex in my body but it becomes a patterned neurological response to stress signaling essentially and I imagine there's a lot of people that don't realize they may have trauma because they don't think that something big happened. Therefore, yeah. I can't be traumatized. Correct. Do you have people you've worked with who didn't even know they had trauma and you worked with them and uncovered something? Yeah. And can you speak on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah, we all have trauma. It's just a byproduct of who we are as a species. We don't know how to process our experiences because we're not taught how to do that. Mm -hmm. So an example might be something to do something that happens during birth like a baby has to emergency c-section that's trauma it's something that was too much for the baby's nervous system or the baby's body not just the nervous system but their body to process mm -hmm. um a concussion 
It's a form of trauma. Um, it can be. Not always, but it can be. If you have migraines, that's a sign that your system has had trouble processing something. And so it's, it's developed a pattern right, over time that shows up as symptoms, autoimmune conditions. Usually that's caused by something that throws the body out of whack. The body's working hard to process something. Visit to a dentist's office. Not one that's stressful or scary. I go in. I have some anesthesia. I come out. Go about my life. I don't think anything of it. But then I start to notice that I'm fatigued regularly or a certain color. I'm around certain kinds of people and and I feel bothered. I don't know why. Hmm. Maybe kind of agitated or overtired. That's the living memory of something my body couldn't process. Um, that agitation might be from some sort of sensory trigger. Some Maybe the surgeon was wearing a red shirt and I woke up during surgery. Um, I don't remember it, but my body remembers it. Mm. Um, and when I say my body remembers it, it's not like I can actively recall the situation. The way our nervous system functions, the way that our whole body functions is we want to be able to predict what might be threatening in the future. And so we, we have this, this way of cataloging sensory information or you know, processing experience. And our system goes, I'm going to create an association with this set of circumstances or these set of sensory input pieces, right? Whether it be colors or sound or smells or temperatures. And that's really intelligent because it helps us to predict Danger, move away from danger, predict safety, move towards safety, food, and so on and so forth. But it becomes really inconvenient when we have a difficult experience. Maybe say where we fall off a bicycle and we break a bone and paramedics come and they strap us down, for instance, and our body isn't able to, to shake or discharge the energy from the experience. It's just an example, not that we need to shake, but let's just say in that circumstance we couldn't. Now our body holds on to that tension pattern um, because we don't know that our, our body needs to, to move through this tension pattern. Our body ends up holding on to that and we live with it. And across time, it shows up. Dr. Gabor Mate says trauma comes back as a reaction, right? Not as a thought necessarily. And Dr. Peter Levine would say trauma is what happens in the absence of an empathetic witness. And when he says that, what he's pointing to is the need that we have as human beings for supportive, safe connection with other human beings. Um, and I need to be able to feel like I'm supported when I'm experiencing stress. It's just how my organism grows. You think about it, a baby is born, uh, comes into this world out of mom, and baby needs mom. It's essential or a caregiver of some kind, whether it's mom or not. But baby needs that for survival. Baby needs to have mom or someone making sounds and showing facial expressions and cooing and responding appropriately to baby's sounds and gestures and needs. Well, if that doesn't happen, baby's brain doesn't develop the same way as yours or mine might have developed. And then over time, that becomes this habitual response that might look like something like narcissistic personality disorder. 
psycho like psychopathy or sociopathy you know like that's just an abnormal abnormal i put that in air quotes here brain development mm-hmm. the brain adapts to not getting its needs met so you know coming full circle back to this absence of an empathetic witness sometimes all we need is somebody to be there with us for the stressful experience to simply be a stressful experience as opposed to it living on in our body as this memory that's triggered by all sorts of circumstances. So is it almost that you're not being allowed to experience the stressful experience fully? Part it could of it? Be. Could be. Could be, right? It's so nuanced, though. It, it, it could be that I experienced too much of the stress. And, so um, like you said, too little, too much, not enough. Yeah. Too much, too fast. Right, so it's happened so quickly. Here's a good example. This is something that one of the one of um, my mentors would say. He says, "Imagine it's a beautiful day, and it's a beautiful day today. Mm-hmm. Imagine you walk outside. You live downtown in the city. You walk outside of the sidewalk, and you're looking up, and you're admiring the beauty of the sky. It's just this incredible blue. It's the right temperature. It's um, there's a slight breeze, and you're you're taking it in." It's gorgeous. And you're looking up and to the left. And suddenly there's a flash of red from your right. And you're unconscious. And you wake up and it's a week a week later and you, you're in the hospital. And you find out that you were hit by a truck. So that happened too fast. I couldn't even orient to the threat. I couldn't process the intensity of the experience. I couldn't run away from it. And I couldn't protect myself from it. Mm-hmm. So what happens is my body shuts down all functions other than the vital ones so that I don't have to experience the pain of that, right? And I'm in a coma, so my body just didn't have the energy to continue going. Now, let's say I assimilate back into my life. I rehabilitate my body. I move back into the world. But I'm left with a blind spot here. And I find that I get really angry every time I'm around certain people. I don't know why. Some days I get angry, some days I don't. And I'm just living with this. Maybe a person like that comes to me and says, I just I just get angry sometimes and I don't know why. And we start to investigate sets of circumstances. And we discover that when this person is near the color red, their body responds by getting really flooded with hormones and chemicals and mobilizing energy, the sympathetic nervous system. And they call that anger because that's what we call that state. Well, we also find out that the truck that hit them was red. So what happened is there's this flash of red. The system catches that, but it doesn't catch anything else. The body hasn't been able to process the experience. It was too quick. It's just way too fast and it overwhelmed it. Things like this can happen in extremes like this, but they can also happen in really subtle ways too. And then it has an impact on our behavior. It has an impact on our thinking. Um, And most of us are unaware of it. So when you have this trauma that you've experienced, how can it shift people's lives in potentially a negative way or a, I don't know, an off course direction? You know, how have you Mm -hmm. seen that affect people? Well, mysterious ailments is a good example, but like headaches, chronic headaches or something like that. On the ability to not be able to diagnose Mm -hmm. a health issue. That's right, yeah. 
chronic health issues, autoimmune conditions, those are more extreme, but relationship problems, right? Like I seem to just be in the same relationship all the time. Like there's like friction with certain kinds of people. Um, there's conflict on a regular basis or just sometimes with certain kinds of people. I noticed that I'm just like really agitated. I don't know why. Those are really good examples of there's something there. There's a reason that these things are happening. Humans are so interesting. Oh, man. So cool. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. So cool. So a friend of mine and I started a nonprofit foundation, and the mission of our foundation, we call it the Truth Foundation. And the mission of the foundation is to end trauma for us as humans. And we believe that trauma is the root of all of our problems as people. And it's the one thing that, like a virus, has been with us as long as we look back across time. And the things that we we hypothesize and we're beginning to do research to prove or disprove this, but the assumption we're working from is that our process of culture, myth, um, political structure, family components, like family customs, everything about who we are, the essence of us, trains us to be this way, mm -hmm. trains us to have these, the lingering, like the living memory of stress show up. And the, and the reason we believe this is because the only place that we see trauma, symptoms, right, the living memory of stress is in domesticated animals. It's nowhere else. It's just in domesticated animals. And so we believe that the process of domestication, like the way that we train ourselves to be civilized, something in that process is broken. And it's creating the sickness. But the sickness is invisible to most of us. We're not aware that it exists. So we go looking for ways to fix the symptoms. And we have complex systems built up in our world. It's the psychotherapy systems, medical systems that are all created to deal with the symptoms of this invisible thing. But we believe there's another way. We believe there's a way to stop it from happening. It's going to take us many generations to do it. But when we can train ourselves to be with ourselves in a new way, to be with stress, to build resilience, which is really our ability to be with stress, that there's less lingering. The living memory can begin to cease, but we've got to train our reflexes to be a bit different. So do you think that the problem is, or the issue is in the domestication of humans, we're not trained how to deal with stress? We're not trained to deal with overwhelming experiences. We're not trained to deal with our emotions. Think about this. Um, this is a good example I like to use. And so we have two little kids. Let's say Sally and Johnny, just because those are the easiest white people names that I could pick right now. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> so Sally and Johnny. And they don't have to be white. But Sally and Johnny. Yeah. Right. And Sally says something to Johnny. They're kids. They're, they're playing. Johnny starts crying. What normally happens in many cultures is Sally apologized to Johnny. You made him feel sad. Right? Well, that in and of itself is training. It's not teaching us how to be with our emotions. It's not teaching us that emotions are good. It's not teaching us that they come from within. It's it's a, it's externalizing this whole situation and it's 
feelings need to be fixed. You need to fix my feelings, right? I'm not understanding as a child, or Johnny's not understanding as a child, how to be with himself. And additionally, if we kind of expand on this, don't be sad. It's okay. There's nothing to be afraid of. We want to offer reassurance to a child when they're afraid. Sometimes we may want to say, you know, it's safe, right? But I think there is a different way we can do that that doesn't tell them that what they're feeling is not true, right? But part of our conditioning is know what your feeling is not true. And over time, I learned to distrust my feelings. I learned to distrust my emotional responses. And I learned to inhibit my expression of emotion. Now, we might believe that some of this inhibition is you know, useful, especially in culture. Like, I don't want to get triggered by something and just jump up and start raging on you, of course. Right? Self-control is useful. And yet there's a way that our training has a tendency to teach us not to trust ourselves. And so I think that there's some nuance in how we can help ourselves condition ourselves to trust some of these natural impulses. So for instance, um, let's say a gazelle gets chased by a cheetah. Gazelle's being chased by the cheetah. The cheetah catches the gazelle. And let's say that, well, when the cheetah catches the gazelle, it's pretty exhausted. It's really used all of its energy to catch the gazelle. Gazelle goes limp. And that's part of the, the response in the gazelle's body to protect it from feeling its own death. So it goes numb. It becomes limp. It's alive, but its breathing slows way down, almost like a possum playing dead. Mm-hmm. Let's say a hyena who's been waiting is like, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have a meal. So it comes over. The hyena's big. The um the cheetah's exhausted. It's gonna get scared away by the hyena. Now let's just say that there's some baboons nearby. Baboons will protect the gazelle. It's a fascinating thing. Wow. And they'll chase off the hyena. Let's say the baboon chases off the hyena. The gazelle's gonna start to come out of this frozen state. As it's doing this, its body goes from completely immobilized to beginning to mobilize. So the systems start to turn back on, so to speak. We've got more blood flow to the muscle groups. We'll see some tremoring and some movements, right? And they'll be a little bit jagged and kind of glitchy at first. Then they'll become smoother. The legs may kick a little bit. Um, Now, if another cheetah showed up or if some other creature showed up and started eating this gazelle again, it would become immobilized again. And let's say that happens over and over and over again. That gazelle, but the gazelle gets away. That gazelle is probably going to be traumatized because it won't have been able to resolve coming out of this state. But generally, it, that, that's not what happens. It's very rare for something like that to, to occur. It'll kind of tremor, and then it gets up and it just takes off running. Like nothing happened. It's not going to be terrified every time it comes near a cheetah. It's going to run the way it's supposed to run. It's not going to have some lingering living memory that's triggering it when it's near the smell. No PTSD. No PTSD. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But with humans, 
we somehow interrupt that process. We stop ourselves from doing that. We've got tons of different ways of doing that. Paramedics will give Valium or you know sedatives to people who are shaking to keep themselves from hurting themselves, you know, supposedly, but that also stops the body from processing intensity and the experience. And this that's just one example of stress physiology, but it can lead to these lingering imprints. I was thinking about this the other day with wanting to quit caffeine. And I was thinking to myself, is caffeine a way of potentially masking or changing my emotional state to avoid feeling things? And I got curious of what could potentially be below that. And I imagine in our society, we have many things that when we don't feel good, we watch TV, look at social media, yeah. uh, whatever, eat more, you know, exercise as a way of finding a way of moving away from actually being with those feelings. Mm -hmm. That's it, really. That, and that's the essence of it. We, it's very appropriate in our culture to turn away from feeling. And we have lots of industry built around this to turn away from our feelings. The interesting thing about emotion is that it doesn't last long if we don't resist it and if we don't make it bigger. And so once we learn that, it's not necessarily in our, our instinct at this point, given our conditioning to go, oh, I'm feeling really sad. I'm just going to, oh, there's the sadness. Whew, there's some tears. Oh, oh, I feel relieved. It's not in our instinct to do that. Um, but when we learn how to trust that, our system just does this little arc. It's like a little, little um, sine wave almost. Like there's the activation comes if we don't constrict around it and we don't make more pictures in our minds like daydreams of of the things that we don't have more thoughts making it bigger it will pass and on the other side we feel relieved and we can go about our business again so we're not giving ourselves actually time to just process and let it move through yeah and then we're holding it and trapping more and more and this is where the you know physical symptoms or whatever they may be or you know, personality symptoms can start mm -hmm. to, you know, manifest in negative ways potentially. Yeah. And this is just one layer of the way that the human body adapts to these sets of circumstances that we have, you know, relational things that show up and the way that we bond and form relationships it plays a part in this and that creates an imprint in us. But what I, what I like to say is it's like um, if you take a shark and you put it in a fish tank, the shark will grow to the size of a fish tank. If you, put it in a larger fish tank, it'll get a bit bigger. You put it in the ocean, it gets enormous. It's the same way with plants. You put them in a small pot, the plant will grow to the size of the extent it, its roots can grow. Humans are no different. We're, we're complex, but we grow in response and relationship with the environment that we grow in. We've been thinking about ourselves as being created by something else or some some energy some philosophical conceptual thing for so long that i think that we're disconnected from how much we are mostly organic matter right and there is this way that we do adapt to all the different sets of circumstances from the point of conception and before 
right? Our genetic structure is encoded with, you know, the information, so to speak, about our environment or the environment of our parents and their parents. That stuff may not turn on and off right away, but it can be turned on and off based on the sensory input that we're getting from our environment. Our environment is, you know, the physical environment, the nourishment that we take in, the relationships that we have, the thoughts that we think, how we feel, all of those things. And so it's really complex the way an individual forms across time. And so then we have people, psychology, um, personal development, and whatnot, and come to my seminar. And in one weekend, we're going to be totally changed. (laughs) And at this point in my journey, I have to laugh because I have to say, no, no, no. It's taken a lifetime for that person to become who they are. A weekend isn't going to change the fundamental nature of who they are. It takes time and consistency. If I want to change the shape of my physical body, I can't do that in three months necessarily. I mean, I can make significant changes in three months, but yeah, it takes time. It It takes takes time. time. It takes consistency. It takes time. It takes perseverance and it takes to make those changes, which are typically very small habits Mm -hmm. to make that change takes a lot. And if I want the change to become an automatic behavior, not just a thing that I I grew some muscles real quickly, right? Because we can grow some muscles real quickly. But if I want my body to default to that state and that shape, think of how long that takes. Years. Yeah. So what are some of the tools you like to use with somebody when they come in and they're, you know, feel that they may have trauma or they're experiencing, you know, a lack of who they could potentially be? Mm. Where I start with everybody is awareness. Um, I use this quote a lot and I'll share this quote with you here. Uh, We can probably... Um, link to the to the lecture in the show notes. It's um, Anthony DeMello. I think he's quoting a Sufi, but it goes like this. When the eye is unobstructed, the result is sight. When the ear is unobstructed, the result is hearing. When the mouth is unobstructed, the result is taste. And when the nose is unobstructed, the result is smell. When the mind is unobstructed, the result is wisdom. And when the heart is unobstructed, the result is love. And so what I say is where we begin is by removing the barriers to our felt sense experience of ourselves, of our aliveness. We want to, we want to discover what are the barriers to our, our sense of our awareness of ourself. Can I feel my body? What's my capacity to notice my internal experience interoception? How aware am I of my where I am in space, my proprioceptive capacity, right? Spatial awareness. Um, and so I have a variety of different like, questions or conversational pieces, techniques that we might do to better discover those kinds of things. So we want, I want for people to be able to experience the rapture of being alive. That means the full spectrum of being alive. I want to be sad when I'm sad and happy when I'm happy. I want to feel angry when I'm angry, and I want to feel joy when I'm feeling joyful. I don't want to stifle the, the experience of aliveness, and I also want to trust myself to be able to make it through whatever experience I'm having. I had an experience where I was feeling a lot of grief, and I could catch myself wanting to just move past it. Yeah. And I would take a very intentional pause and just let myself ball. Because yeah. I know in my mind, I'm like, if you hold on to this, it's not going to be good. 
And even though you go to the depths of pain, even in the experience when you're feeling that deep sadness, there's almost this like peace behind it. And when you move through, it is all, it just, it's gone. It's like a cloud moved by. That's it. And those waves can keep coming. And so, you know, where I am in my life, I try to create space to just, okay, I have to give space for these feelings because they're here and let them move. Mm -hmm. That's it. I mean, that's the essence of it. It's so much easier for us to talk about it than it is to do it. Um, we're not in practice of doing it. Well, especially I think a lot of people for a long time, I know in my life when I was much younger, I couldn't even figure out how to cry. Yeah. I know there were points in my life where I was like, I know I need to cry. And I would try so hard, but I was so disconnected from that ability. It was just, you know, and then going through a lot of you know workshops and reflection, and I eventually gained the ability, but many people are in that state. That's right. Yeah. So awareness is one of the first steps mm -hmm. of, you know, I know I think you talk a lot about embodiment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And tell me a little bit about, you know, it sounds like one of the end goals or, you know, uh, ideal state places to be with yourself is embodiment. You know, mm -hmm. what is embodiment? Yeah. I use the word somatic to talk about um, that as a as a whole constellation. And okay. So embodiment, I mean, it, it's a, am I in my body? Like to, to start with. Am I aware of my body, the signals that my body's receiving? Am I aware of my emotions? Am I aware of my sensations? Am I aware of my thoughts? Can I differentiate those things? Do I say I think I feel? When I talk about my feelings, am I, am I confusing my thoughts with my emotions? Can I even, am I even aware of my sensory experience? That's going to be a beginning point. And as a field... The way I define the word somatics, so soma is a Greek word that references, it means of the body, hmm. right? A generalization of the word. But somatics as a whole, it's, it's looking at the whole constellation of what makes an individual. So it is a mixture of my thoughts. It's the emotions I'm experiencing. It's the sensations that, I'm, that, that are happening inside of me. It's the way that I'm moving through space, the way my body responds uh, to, you know, me, to the world. It's my sense of meaning and purpose, right? Thinking, feeling, sensing, being, right? And it's, it's a constellation of all those things. So when in the field of somatics or embodiment, as I define it, it's, it's being with the whole essence of an individual, and bringing awareness to the essence of that individual and, and letting that emerge organically. There's not a lot of force necessary to generate change. Change is what we want to have happen. It's literally a part of every facet of our being. Um, as an organism, we're growing and we're constantly in search of that change. We just got to get out of the way and set the right conditions. And when we do set the right conditions, it's amazing what will happen automatically. And so my, my work, my interest has been, how do we set the right conditions so that the organism on its own changes in the way that we want it to change in this movement towards some other way so that that becomes the natural byproduct of what we're doing, where I'm automatically doing these things. I'm not thinking about them. I don't need to breathe in a certain way to, to generate the state. My body's naturally in that state. I love that. So what were things you began to practice or explore to 
have your own embodiment? Mm. You know, when did you start to even become curious about any of this? You know, when were you a shark in a fish tank? <laughs> yeah. Most of my life, I was a shark in a fish tank. You're out now. I'm, I'm working on it. <laughs> <laughs> Layers, right? Layers. Always, yeah. Layers. Um, I experienced a lot of difficulty in my teenage years. And coming out of that, I turned towards drugs and alcohol. I just turned towards things that would give me a feeling that I could say feels good. And I discovered psychedelics. And that began my like foray into these like this exploration of myself. I didn't know that's what I was doing. I thought I was getting away from all the bad feelings. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what ended up happening was I was faced with feeling all the things that were happening inside. And little by little, I continued to follow my curiosity and my interest with obscure mystic traditions and um, culture, religion, psychology, physiology, which the more I learned, the more I was curious about myself. And so I'd practice forms of meditation or forms of movement, um, introspective awareness. And then that turned into hiring mentors, people to work with to help to, to teach me how to do these things and grow this sense of awareness of myself whether that be breathing in certain ways, whether that be imagining certain things, um, walking in certain certain environments. And little by little, little by little, I, I would discover things about myself and I'd be curious. And, and the more I discovered, the more I was curious. And I kept exploring. And psychedelics were a part of that exploration. And then they stopped being a part of it. Because what I realized is that they were just getting in the way at a certain point. Mm -hmm. Ram Das talks about this mm -hmm. for a while. He's just like, I just wanted to get high. And then I realized I was getting high. So I stopped using LSD. I think LSD was his, his thing. It was my thing too. And he's like, then I was meditating and I, and I was still just wanting to get high. He just, and it, it can be a natural thing to turn towards what feels good and away from what feels bad, but it's a trap because life is inherently painful at times. The resistance to that pain is what creates the suffering, hmm. right? So befriending that discomfort has been a, a part of that journey of turning towards, well, here, here's a discomfort. Here's an uncomfortable experience. Let me be with it. Creating space to be with my thoughts. Creating space to be with my body, to feel my body. Floating in a float tank regularly. Something I've done. Amen. <laughs> I, I, think, I think everybody should. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. Uh, but working long-term with mentors that could help to guide me in ways that I couldn't guide myself was invaluable to the it, changing my fish tank, so to speak, finding my way into a river, maybe or river moving towards the ocean, maybe, you know, where I have more room to expand and to grow. And I can do some of that on my own. I love that. And I was listening to a podcast with you on it. And I know at one point you had a big desire to go into Peru and, you yeah. were kind of, you know, you changed course for a little bit and stayed away and kept, you know, integrating without using any plant medicines or psychedelics. But there did come an opportunity to go down there. Mm -hmm. And I'm very curious to hear about your journey down there. Yeah. Because you were there for a year. I'm actually, I've done ayahuasca, but I'm actually going to do in next week in Mexico uh, a seven day Shipibo 
and I know you studied under them. I'm very curious. I know they have a very strong lineage yeah. uh, with ayahuasca, and they hold a lot of reverence for it. I'd be curious to hear about your experience down there, maybe one of your most profound experiences, and I have so many questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the Shipibo people are even more than ayahuascaros. They would have been considered, some of them, vegetalistas or you know people of the plants and um well i'll start with the a little bit of how i ended up getting to um peru it was really serendipitous i was gifted and you know a couple months in peru from this guy who i had some we tried to start a business and a massive fallout and i think he was you know trying to pay me back karmically by gifting me this this journey so we went to peru together and it was just synchronicity after synchronicity after synchronicity we met a guy at the first night we were there who was happened to be on the connecting flight from san salvador or salvador into lima peru and he just happened to own eight acres uh, in a small town called tamashiaku which is like a couple hours boat ride away from Iquitos, peru which is the the mouth of the amazon essentially you can only get in by plane or by boat so we meet this guy and, and he's there to work with ayahuasca and he's been doing it for like 15 years at that point or something wow. like this. And, and we're like, well, hell yeah, we want to stay connected. And so we stay connected via email and in meeting him, he introduced us to, he told us where to go inside of Iquitos to stay. We stayed at a hostel that was literally across this little road from, um, from a restaurant called Don on the Amazon. And we became friends with the owner of, of this restaurant and he, passed away i think it was like a year or two ago hmm. but uh but yeah we became friends with him his name was jim oh man i think i'm getting the name wrong now uh, well but either way it's been a while it was in 2015 when we were down there but so we became friends but all of the uh, many of the ayahuasca retreat companies would bring their um their attendees to this restaurant because the restaurant catered to the diet requirements for ayahuasca and a lot of a lot of places do and when i was there i met some of the owners of some of these different places and that began my foray into learning about excuse me learning about the the different relationships that these different people had with this plant and it's really quite interesting um it's we're not really sure how long there are different measurements of time some people say a thousand years some people say a hundred years some people say less some people say more but either way the, these really it's there's this really interesting way that the shipibo people have connected with many many plants and there's folklore that the amazon jungle was a or is a permaculture experiment from indigenous people so the plants live in balance with each other it's pretty phenomenal um, but um, they work with so many different plants. So I'm down in Peru and I meet lots of really interesting people and I'm documenting what happiness means to people while I'm there. I'm interviewing them and asking them questions about it, and doing some writing. I come back to the States and I sell almost everything that I own and I go back. And when I go back, I connected somehow through... A person I met while I was down there with a woman who lived at this center. And rather than go through the retreat center, which the Ayahuasca Foundation is the name of the retreat center, rather than go directly through them, I reached out to a woman who lived on site and jumped in with 
a retreat that was happening there. And so during my time there, I got to work with these different healing plants. So a number of different plants that cause the body to eliminate toxins, ayahuasca, learning about the folklore of the Shipibo people. And they believe that there's a certain tree that is enlightened. And it can happen to most any tree, but it literally glows in the dark. Really? Yeah, like Avatar. Really? Yeah, it's incredible. Wow. And so they have one of these trees. They call it the Noya Rao tree. And they, I wouldn't say they worship it, but there's folklore around this tree and what it means to them, the illumination, like the light that it can bring. And so beautiful songs. The ex- My first experience with ayahuasca was in Peru, so I didn't have the Western experience of it as much as I had you know, more of a, a Peruvian experience with it. <clears throat> and it was, I've done a lot of psychedelics, man. None of them were quite like this. It was familiar, the feeling, but overwhelming too. Uh, intense, beautiful, frightening, all the things. And so your question was, what were some of those the, the insights or some of the, the experiences? And I fasted for 14 days with just water and the bark of the Noyara tree. Um, I had incredible dreams. I drank poisons and then threw them up. They administered um, a variety of different plants to help my digestive system, my body to heal. But they believe that pain's a part of healing. If if you take in a toxic plant and it causes your body to to get sick, that your body's not balanced, which is, you know, I don't think medically that's a, a very good philosophy, but it's interesting nonetheless. And so they'd say, eat these seeds. Say, okay, okay. Here are these seeds. Pinon Blanco, so white seeds, right? So I eat these seeds and they're like, okay, now you have to drink water. You're going to need to drink eight gallons of water. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, you have to drink water. Those are poisonous. They'll kill you. <laughs> I'm like, what? They're like, yes, those are poisonous. Drink water <laughs> now. I'm like, all right, I didn't want to do this, but okay. So they give you, like, it's like a dog bowl. And I scoop out water and I drink water. And you essentially drink water until your body forces the water out of your stomach because your stomach gets so full it has to vomit. Wow. <clears throat> and you do that, or I did that, until my vomit was clear. So it comes out foamy at first, and then it, then there's seed particles. And then <clears throat> essentially they believe that helps to clear out the stomach, but then whatever gets through the digestive system will help to clear out the rest of the digestive system and create a reset of sorts. So I did that many times. There's a sap from this tree. It's called sangre de gurado, so like dragon's blood. And it's red like blood, and it's thick and gooey like blood might be. And... Small amounts of it can be used for an assortment of different things. It has collagen in it, and it'll repair wounds really quickly. Um, it's good for killing off parasites. It's, it's supportive for the digestive system for uh, all kinds of things. But they use it on cuts and bug bites, and it causes the, causes the body to heal amazingly. Well, they do purges with this too. So they're like you drink like a glass with a whole lot, maybe eight ounces of this stuff in there, and then they're like, all right, got to throw up. Got to throw up until it's clear. Meanwhile, every other night we're drinking ayahuasca. And we're in the middle of nowhere where, you know, we're a couple hours away from any civilization at all. 
just being in the jungle alone for a period of time would start to transform your mind, oh, yeah. let alone doing the po most powerful psychedelic on the planet. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. You know, having studied an array of psychology and philosophy, what is your take on what ayahuasca is and why it's here and its benefits? Mm. Well, I think psychedelics of all kinds have the power to get a, get our bodies into a like a flexible state. Our nervous system, our neurology, our, our processing of experience. And they they open us up to perceiving the world, the sensory signals in a completely different way than we can unless we have really significant practice with certain kinds of meditative practices, right? Ayahuasca specifically causes the body to purge, which can help to eliminate toxins. I don't know why it's here, but it's interesting that cultures for as long as we have historical records have had relationships with substances or behaviors that cause an altered state. And these altered states are usually things that the priests, the accolades, the wise people, the guides are participating in, and oftentimes the healers. Ayahuascaros traditionally would be the only one that drank and they would be like the doctors not that's the closest thing we have in the western world to a name if people would come to them they would know the the person coming they'd know their family they'd know the history of the person they'd know the local area where the person lived and they'd sit with them and it would give them the sight to see what was wrong with them whether that be the spirits or the it, most most of it's interwoven with spirituality. And then they would know what plants to prescribe. Well, psychedelics open up our awareness. They enhance our intuition. Do we know what the mechanism is scientifically of, of what's giving in the information? No. But nonetheless, it's very interesting because intuition is enhanced and we know how to help somebody. So this plant has a lot of different folklore around it. Right? There's folklore about the vine, the vine of death, the little death, right? Where it, it causes us to experience this sense of being disconnected from our bodies or of dying so that we can be reborn, shedding certain psychological or spiritual or physiological things, resetting the nervous system. Don't know. We don't have enough study on it. We don't have enough understanding of it, but it does something. And people do come out of these experiences changed, sometimes traumatized. And so that's where the like, like we want to use discernment with when when we encourage somebody to use these substances or when we decide to step into these experiences. Just want to make sure that we have the resources and the support and that's necessary for them. Um, because they can be incredibly beautiful. And when we're in that state, we're 
easily programmed. Yes. And talking about programmed, I know you watched the Teal Swan documentary oh I sent you. Yes. <laughs> if you guys are listening to this, after you listen, you need to go on Hulu and watch the documentary The Deep with Teal Swan. And I think this is an important thing to talk about because anybody who's not even explored any of the realm of self-development or trauma, I think it can be confusing. And if you watch a documentary like that, you can get uh, a perception that all people are like that and or become very cautious of stopping yourself from potentially receiving healing. That's right. And I think it would be good to talk to you about of how to understand, you know, what is fucked up mm -hmm. <laughs> and what is good. Right. So tell me what your experience was watching that. Man, it was hard to watch. Ugh, hard to watch. I have so many judgments and um, and opinions about what she's doing. First of all, it's not ethical what she's doing with people or what her team's doing with people, let alone what they're doing with each other, um, in my opinion. Um, yeah, waterboarding somebody sure. that they do in Guantanamo Bay at a spiritual healing retreat, yeah. I would say has uh, gone past uh, yeah. ethical. And what I notice is that she's taken concepts and frameworks and procedures of sorts or interventions, and then she's using them in a way that's kind of messy with little uh, awareness of the impact, the potential impact for the individual. So what I saw were people who were inexperienced and untrained doing things that that could potentially be causing a lot of harm. Many of the people in those communities were having memories implanted in their minds. Um, a couple scenes where I was just like, wait a minute, we're going to ask the people around us to tell, wait a minute, they're going to tell me about my childhood. They're going to read my childhood. Tell me what I had experienced Correct. in the past. Tell yes. me what my subconscious may have yes. experienced. Yeah, they're going to tell me because they heard it from the spirits that told them or the angels or the, or the, or the dead people or the, whatever it is, right? And the sad thing for me about this is that everybody believes this. They're so scared and traumatized and in need of support and isolated and alone and, and, and sad they really need to belong somewhere to a group of people. And we see this so much more right now today in the world. There's this sense of disconnection from others and there's this need to belong. And it's part of our, our uh, essence, like just who we are as humans. And yet unchecked, what ends up happening is people end up in these experiences in these environments where they're being told these things about themselves and they think, well, they, they, they must be the experts. They probably know and they withdraw further from their family. There are a couple different characters in this who withdrew from their families and didn't talk to them again. And their families were like, this didn't happen. And, well, they told me it did. It must have. I remembered it. It becomes I remembered this. But it's not I remembered it. It's in a hypnotic state. I've been told that this is what I experienced, and now I believe that it's true. And... She would until say at one point that she was diagnosed with schizophrenia and borderline personality disorder. And when I watch her behavior, I say, well, yeah, that's that's borderline. Maybe. It, it is. Those are the characteristics, the violent mood swings, the 
um, making things about herself. Everything's about me. The fear that everybody had around her mood swings. Yeah, those are the symptoms also of trauma. Significant relational trauma. I can't trust anyone, so I need to be in charge at every single moment. And I know everything. I know it all. If I know it all, I can be safe. I can be assured that no one will ever hurt me again. Yeah, it seems like someone who thinks they're healed and has learned a lot of healing, but is not actually healed, is projecting her trauma and her fears onto other people. Correct. That your family isn't safe and they don't love you. That was it. That was it. And 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 I, you can hear it in her language, the way she uses her language. Like, your family's not safe. They abused you. That's what she lived through. Yeah. It's a it's definitely something that everybody should watch. It is. And it was hard for me to watch. I'm just like, my God, it's not nothing about what she's doing is helping to heal trauma or to resolve trauma. In fact, if anything, she's deepening the wounding that people are experiencing and telling them she's selling them a dream and delivering a nightmare. Exactly. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. So awful. Yeah. Well, well, this was super fun. It was. Yeah. Thanks for coming out. I really appreciate it. Where can we find you? So two places. Uh, the training company I run is called Trauma and Somatics. It's traumaandsomatics.com and willreason.com, R-E-Z-I-N, or awakensoma.com. Either of those go to the same place. Awesome, brother. Thank you. Thanks, man. Guys, hopefully you walk away from this episode understanding trauma, understanding the importance of releasing trauma in your own life and how to begin to process emotions or difficult feelings and the importance of doing so. I want you to reflect on your own life. What are vices or substances or outlets you use to soothe your own emotions? And we all have them, right? TV, TikTok, radio, Netflix, food, drugs, alcohol, whatever it might be, something to soothe emotions. What I highly recommend, and I am by no means an expert at doing this, I am by no means some fucking guru who is always able to cope and handle his emotions, but I am aware that there is a path to feeling as good as you can feel. I recently invested in a uh, upright meditation pillow. I have a meditation pillow at my house now, but I got one where I can actually lean back. It's even more comfortable. And there's a lot of things in my life that have created a lot of benefit. But having an area in your house that's very easy to access to just be able to sit down and focus on your breath has been one of the most powerful things in helping me just be present, but also get better sleep. Every single person in the world should meditate. All meditation is, is focusing on a point and concentrating. And then as your mind, your emotions whirl around that focus, you just let them be. And sometimes you get super caught up in your thoughts. And other times you have these very peaceful moments. But the point isn't to cultivate any specific experience. It's just to be present to whatever is, no matter what it is. And by doing so, you develop deeper mindfulness. You develop deeper awareness. You start to become more mindful of what you say, what you do, how you act. 
more in tune with your nervous system. And all it takes is five, 10, eventually you can get up to 30 minutes. Amazing. But if you only got five minutes, it's so simple. I recommend buying a meditation pillow or a setup, or just literally sit on your couch or your, your favorite chair. Close your eyes, just focus on your breath with a timer on. It will make a huge difference. The more you do this, when you start to get too into uncomfortable situations, you'll start to sit back and you've trained yourself. Okay, I'm feeling something. I feel discomfort. I'm just going to sit back and breathe into it and let it dissipate by moving through the emotions. Now, this is also important because a lot of us, many of us eat based on emotions, boredom, happiness, sadness, grief, whatever it may be. You know, we all have some kind of emotional connection with food more than others. So developing meditation, especially before you begin the day, will create more mindful habits in your eating, which will create better results with whatever you're trying to achieve, whether it's better digestion, better health, to be leaner, to put on more muscle. It all begins with just becoming more aware, more aware, more aware. So your goal, five minutes of meditation first thing in the morning. Eventually, I want you to build up to five minutes of meditation in the morning and at night. Once you feel like you got that, go to 10. And then once you got that, go to 30 twice a day. Now, that's a lot, but it's really only an hour. You never have to get up to that point. Again, just start with five minutes and slowly build five minutes at a time and find where your sweet spot is. But I say, if you can get up to twice a day, 30 minutes, you're a fucking pro. But not necessary. Again, this is about what works best for you. So start small and build from there. Find your sweet spot. And you might hang out at 15 minutes twice a day for a while. That's amazing. And maybe you go up or maybe you have to go back down. But the most important thing is you need some kind of practice. Morning and night, five minutes, bare minimum. You can do anything for five minutes. Think about when you fucking scroll on TikTok, how long and how much time you can waste on TikTok. I can easily spend an hour, sometimes 90 minutes to two hours, just researching content and getting lost. So five minutes is nothing. Five minutes is literally nothing, especially if it can eventually change your life. All right, guys, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Please leave a five-star review. It helps it out. Apple or Spotify. Share this with somebody you think will benefit from it. And I'll see you on next week's episode.